From Philadelphia Young Playwrights, this is Mouthful. I'm Trine Nuri. Every week, we'll be having a complicated conversation with a young person about the things that matter to them, things that they have written about and shared on stages across the city. And then we'll go out into the community and talk to teens, adults, experts, anyone who can broaden the conversation. This week, we explore the complicated conversation of learning. Let's face it. I just wish that more of my teachers had uh, been that way in high school. I do too. The way students learn and teachers teach. (laughs) I always definitely felt like there was an ulterior motive. There was a thing that I was supposed to be absorbing Mm -hmm. from the lesson that I wasn't. Don't always match up. And then it really wasn't about my reactions or what I was taking from it at all. Are you at all aware of, have you ever heard of Paolo Freire? Do you know who that? No. Okay, so he wrote a book called... Okay, so producer Maya Penn, a recent high school graduate, and Erica Morris, a former teacher and educational consultant, are in the thick of a conversation about school. about two different ways, two different types of teaching. There's a banking theory where I pour information into you, like I put money into a bank, and then I expect you to regurgitate that information to me like when I want to take money out of the bank. So then there's problem-posing pedagogy. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Pedagogy? Pedagogy. The art, science, or profession of teaching. How do we get here? Where I have enough respect and trust for my students. This conversation is a reaction to a monologue called Pretension Detention, written by Erin Orth when she was a senior at Masterman High School. To be able to share the power in that space. So you got that? Two types of pedagogy? No? Okay, well, let's just listen to the monologue performed by Emily Moylan. Don't call on me. Don't call on me. Please, 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 please don't call on me. Look, I swear, I read the book. All of it, cover to cover. I get the plot. I know who the characters are. I get it. I get it. On the surface, it all makes sense. It's actually an enjoyable book. So why the hell do we have to dig so much deeper into this? All of a sudden, everything's a metaphor. Every sentence has a double meaning. Suddenly, books aren't meant to just be enjoyed, but to be analyzed to death. I can't do it. I don't want to do that. I don't need to do that. I I know I signed up for an AP English class, but I thought AP stood for Advanced Placement, not Analytical Professionals or Absolutely Pretentious. What did he say? Synecdoche. What the hell does that even mean? That's the other part of the problem. Half the time, I don't even understand what he's saying. But I can't let anyone else know that. Everyone's nodding and murmuring like, yeah, I was totally thinking the same thing. Maybe I'm thinking the same damn thing too, but I don't have a thesaurus on me, so I'll never know. When did everyone in this class become T.S. Eliot? They don't even know what they're saying. Like the other day, Chelsea is going on and on about what the goddamn colors symbolize in The Great Gatsby, when earlier that day, I heard her seriously discussing the literary value of an article in Cosmo. I'm sorry, but I just don't have deep thoughts and I can't fake them either. I know. I should just raise my hand and say, excuse me, sir, but I have no clue what you just said. Could you dumb it down a little bit so I stand a chance of comprehending what the hell is going on here? But then I'd be letting him and 
everyone else know that I'm an absolute literary idiot. But there are some days when I think I have something good to say. Something really good. Something insightful and intellectual. And then I open my mouth and completely lose the ability to form an intelligible sentence. It's like everything I've been thinking about the book just tries to spill out at once and none of it makes sense. So I just shut my mouth and let the smart kids do the talking. Don't call on me. Don't call on me. Please don't do it. Oh, uh, me? Uh... Well, I think that the author did an excellent job at uh, capturing the subtleties of the moment. The uh, juxtaposition of the characters really enhanced the author's periodic structure, and the uh, anthropomorphism really exemplified the digression of the malapropism of the novel, which is really all just... (sighs) You know what? Honestly, I thought that this section of the book was pretty contrived and unoriginal, I simply found it to be an unnecessary event. It just didn't seem realistic, and the actions were very out of character. It's just not an example of his best work, and it really doesn't deserve such an in-depth discussion. I don't think I was supposed to say that. I kind of wanted to know what the teacher was going to say. That last part where the student's like, I'm just like, I just wasn't impressed with this book. What would you have said? I would have probably said, um, tell me more. Our first guest, Erica Morris, taught in Philadelphia's public schools for 13 years. So she knows a thing or two about students and about teachers. This reminds me of uh, moments I've had where I've been talking to my students about something and I'm thinking it's really, you know, important and they're like blank stare, yawn, like they could care less. So I'm like, so? I guess it was funny to me because it made me think of as a teacher that that line you walk between trying to make sure that you have like curriculum that's going to be challenging but at the same time something that makes connections to students that they actually want to be present and learn. During her time as a teacher, Erica worked with kindergartners, first, fourth, and eighth grade students. Working with so many different age groups, she developed many different methods for engaging students. I think part of the problem is doing some is making sure that the subject is something they're interested in in the first place. When I have students that aren't engaged, I always think about because I was a completely unengaged um, student, and so when it was time for me to start teaching my students, I always tried to find some sort of real, real world connection, something I knew that they would be able to, you know, focus on or at least be engaged with. So they have a point of reference throughout the book. So we had we read The Outsiders, which I thought they were going to think was really corny. But I have ne- in my third, I have never met an eighth grader that didn't love that book. And I'm like, why do they like this book so much? And I think it's, I, I still don't really know. They they just fall in love with it. Um, and I think because you, they get to spend a lot of time thinking and talking about relationships and friendships. And I know that's the most important thing for, for students is their relationships and their friendships. And, you know, it's not, it's not a book about adults. There's no adults really in it. But for sure, I focused on, like, real, real world connections, what students are interested in, what's going on today, what happened yesterday that connects. Did you see any parallels between this and that? Like, does this person remind you of that person? If the outsiders were um, in 2016, where would they be? If they lived in Philadelphia, what would they be like? If they were African-American, what would we, how different do you think things would be? Things like that. 
I just always wanted to make sure that the information that I provided for my students, all students, was that it was authentic and it was affirming. And I was very careful about what books I let my I used in terms of curriculum because I wasn't trying to unteach them anything. And I was very careful about using primary sources and letting them give me information about what they're learning and um, for the, and allowing them to be able to tell me what they're getting out of the stuff that we were studying. Because that's how I know what they're learning, but also that's how I know they're actually getting it. So let's talk about like the classroom. Um, what strengths do you see in your classrooms mm-hmm. um, when there were students learning at different levels or different abilities? I appreciated having multiple level learners in there because I think that, number one, they, the students learn best from each other. Um, and I really, I thought my job and what I liked the most about that was to be able to facilitate that um, sharing and exchanging of ideas um, because you never know where these gems are going to come from. Like, you can't assume that students, you know, the students that might be the really high-achieving academic students may have had no sort of life experience, like a student that is not a straight-A student or a student that struggles, and they can participate and add something to a conversation that gives so much depth and layers Mm -hmm. that even I'm learning from what they have to share. So I think the more variation on experiences and levels, I think it's better. It's, It's a richer population. It's a lot more interesting, the conversations and what kind of things people come up with. I think, I think I'm one of the, I believe that how you learn is as important as what you learn. And I think that the best learning environments are environments where people, students feel safe to be able to share their lives. And it's very fragile and you have to model how you interact with them. You have to model how you want them to interact with each other. And I think that it's just a matter of making sure that your space is safe for everyone, that you hold people accountable, but that you make sure that like learning levels and ability do not are not going to stop students from being able to engage in, in material and content. Let's bring in Tamir Harper, a senior at Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia. When Tamir was 17 years old, he co-founded Herb Ed, a nonprofit that advocates for quality and efficient urban education. So did you have a chance to read over the monologue? I did. When I first read it, I read it three times. Um, and the first thing I thought was this happened in schools every day. I chatted with Tamir on the phone for a few minutes after one of his classes. I was one of those students that sat down in certain classes and was like, please don't call on me pretty much. Like, sat there quietly, tried to avoid eye contact um, and everything, even when I knew the content. Why do you think that happens? So it can be a community situation of where that student does not feel safe in a community. Um, And when I talk about community, I'm referring to school. They don't feel comfortable in that classroom that the teacher may, one, say that they're wrong, or to say um, or students begin to laugh at them or students begin to challenging that thought process. Sometimes in Philadelphia, especially, students are coming from various neighborhoods and social economic classes and even like, uh, you know, different backgrounds. So how can, how do you bridge community when there's so many, so much diversity? The main thing is that, one, you're, you come into the building and you, you feel the staff has that community, that you respect each other as you respect yourself. And even with those social economic class, you make everyone feel welcome. 
you welcome conversations in classrooms. You change, and, it's, and this is going to more of educational statement, but you change the pedagogy of the school. And very often in our elementary, middle, and our traditional high schools, you're not able to work with people from different social, economic, or race backgrounds. You're not able to ask yourself questions and do the research, but also ask other people the questions that you have. And it's kind of challenging, and I, I will get that. It's challenging for teachers and administrators to build that sense of community in traditional schools without enough support staff. But I think it's our mission and our civic duty. And as a future educator, I think it needs to be part of your day-to-day operation and part of your curriculum to build that sense of community in order, in order to have a successful classroom. For the final piece of this conversation, Maya and I met with Brooke Sexton, She's the artistic director of Yes And Collaborative Arts. Brooke described to us the unique model of Yes And, tribe-centered learning, which is designed to teach young people how to be participants and shapers of a community. Tribe-centered learning, which is our pedagogy that we've developed over the last 20 years, wanting to create space for kids to learn how to trust each other and themselves, learn how to learn from each other, and uh, work on their imaginative muscles. Like we come from a perspective where, and a lot of us come from neighborhoods where there isn't a lot of opportunities to imagine because there's not a lot of opportunities. And we really believe that the more time and space we give to young people to imagine crazy wild things um, and get that into their bodies and into their mouths and and get them in front of other people validating that 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 really equips them to imagine a life outside of what they might see around them that's one of our main goals so tribe-centered learning objectives are to be interested and curious learners develop a willingness to engage in difficult tasks as a result of experience the rewards of hard work towards a goal, develop the agency and foundation of self to shape their own character and values as they grow into adulthood, imagine and create possibilities for themselves beyond those that their environment and circumstances name as inevitable, including the ability to reject the tribal identifications that do not serve them, have the courage, confidence, technical, and creative tools to translate and express their thoughts, fears, experience, and imagination to their tribes and their wider community, cultivate a sense of the sacred, the importance of ritual, and embrace interdependence. Value different perspectives from their fellow tribe members. Build the skills, intellectual, creative, intuitive, social, to start, join, shape, and consciously engage in tribes throughout their lives with wisdom and self-awareness. Just a few goals. What does that mean to you? (laughs) Well... Oh, means a lot to me, I guess. Um, to me, it's uh, about creating opportunities for young people to come into a safe space, be proven that it's a safe space, and uh, build relationships, build their own character in in a literal sense. Um, realize that they can that they can shape their narrative by being active participants in it, and that they that there are people to trust. And there are people to rely on and and that their voice is essential and not the same. We're about bringing your full self to the collaboration with each other. 
to young people, I would say, Stop looking at what's happening in the center of the room. If you look to the edges, you're going to find the people who feel like you do or experiencing things the way that you're experiencing it, or at least that you can relate to each other in one way or another. And that for teachers, one of our big things is to is saying to be travelers with your students, to believe that you have as much to learn from the experience that you're going through as your kids do and constantly be taking in the information of how kids are treating each other or the look or the huff or the you know the interactions that were positive or negative and and saying how is that going to change what I'm doing how, how can I adapt how can I have more intention in in how I'm creating space for a group of kids to hear me and hear each other and be inspired to make something or learn something or be something. So how do you learn? Do you learn best by making flashcards and taking really detailed notes or reading textbooks? Have you learned better when you record the audio of your teacher giving a lecture? Or is building, painting, or performance art more of your pace when it comes to learning? Let us know your thoughts and send us a tweet at Mouthful Philly. Thanks to Erica, Tamir, and Brooke for the conversations. I'm Trinina Ree. Thanks for listening. Mouthful is produced by Lisa Nelson Haynes, Trinae Ree, and Mitchell Bloom, that's me, for Philadelphia Young Playwrights. PYP is an arts education nonprofit that taps the potential of youth and inspires learning through playwriting. Mouthful is edited by yours truly. Original music for Mouthful was created by Ill Dutes. To join the Ill movement, head on over to illdutes.com. That's I L L D O O T S.com. For episode extras and more information, visit mouthfulpodcastphilly.com. That's mouthfulpodcastphilly.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Bonus points if you write a review. Mouthful is a production of Philadelphia Young Playwrights. Hey, Mouthful listeners, mark your calendars for the 2018 Mouthful Monologue Festival. It's going down April 13th through April 21st at the Drake Theater in Center City, Philadelphia. The festival includes performances of 18 monologues written by middle school and high school students from around the region, including seven that we're going to feature this season on the podcast. The show is pay what you want, which means you can totally pay what you want right after the show. For more information and to make ticket reservations, visit phillyyoungplaywrights.org.